The Old Pilot's Plane Tales, the A320. Boeing was the most successful aircraft manufacturing company on the planet. The company was formed in 1917 and it went on to produce biplanes, monoplanes, metal aircraft, pressurized aircraft, jet airliners, many versions of military bombers, and entire generations of American families got used to climbing onto a Boeing to fly across the United States and beyond. Across the seas there were few other serious options and the Boeing brand could be found in almost every corner of the globe. The 60s and 70s were the heydays with the arrival of the 727, 737 and 747. The 80s saw the 757 and the 767 hit the markets and they were seen as unbeatable. But in Europe, a consortium of small companies saw something that Boeing might have missed. It may have started with the Concorde, which was to become the world's only supersonic airliner after the TU-144 literally fell by the wayside and Boeing's 2707 was cancelled after Congress pulled its funding as costs escalated and design goals fluctuated. The real beginning was the arrival of the A300, the world's first wide-body twin airliner which ushered ETOPS onto the aviation stage. The birth of Airbus wasn't easy. European governments offered and then withdrew support, but by 1970 it had its name. Whilst the two companies fought it out in the glamorous long-haul arena of the mighty twins with the arrival of the 777, in the short-haul market, Boeing was seen by a few to be resting on its laurels. The 737 was a child of the 60s, and the MD-80 and 90, a derivative of the DC-9 from the same era, they were being stretched and upgraded, but underneath they were essentially the same first generation of early jet airliner. Inside the States, the legacy airlines were very happy with their product, but elsewhere there were markets for something new and exciting. Airbus saw an opportunity to completely redesign the modern airliner and take on the well-established dominance of Boeing. It began back in 1977 with the Joint European Transport. Yes, I'm sorry, it spelt JET with British Aerospace, Aerospatiale, Dornier and Fokker combining at the old Vickers site in Weybridge. They were going to collaborate in the formation of a 130 to 180 seat single aisle airliner powered by two CFM-56s. It was going to be produced in three variants, the SA-1, SA-2 and SA-3, and although they didn't realise it at the time, they would become the A319, the A320 and the A321. The project would morph into the A320 when Delta Airlines showed interest in working with Airbus on a 150-seater. Although from the outside, 
The A320 looked like a conventional narrow-body single-aisle airliner with two pylon-mounted turbofans. The approach taken by Airbus was far from conventional. The basic design was attractive in that it had a wider cabin by 8 inches than both the 737 and the 757, that's over 20 centimetres, which may not seem a lot until you climb into your seat for a long flight or realise that the Airbus can take the standard LD3 freight containers in its cargo hold. The overhead bins were larger than Boeing's and the cockpit an ergonomic delight, well designed and laid out with glass instrument displays clearly visible without the presence of a large control yoke in front of them. The airframe was also very advanced, with considerable weight savings from the use of composite materials and aluminium alloys. The main area of difference, though, was in the design of the aircraft's flight control system. Gone were the great lengths of heavy steel cables, rods and pulleys that connected old-fashioned flight controls to yokes in the cockpit. Instead was a fighter-type side-mounted control stick connected to five flight control computers which fed commands to the control services using lightweight electrical wire. The A320 was to be the world's first airliner controlled by a digital fly-by-wire system. Airline pilots are, in general and by their very nature, a conservative bunch. They like to rely on tried and tested systems, and they resist change. Now they were being faced with a modern flight control system that they couldn't easily explain on a whiteboard, that they couldn't heft in their hands, tinker with, and adjust in the hangar, and it was going to take a little time in a classroom to understand. Despite having been around since the 60s, and the days of the Apollo Lunar Training Vehicle, Avro Canada's CF-105 Arrow, Concorde, the F-16, the F-18, the Space Shuttle and many more, there was a lot of resistance to this technology. Most of this resistance came purely from a lack of knowledge and appreciation of what could be offered, and it has to be said that Airbus didn't do a great job of educating their customers. Then came a blow that redoubled the prejudice against this new fly-by-wire aircraft, Air France Flight 296. Airframe Fox Golf Fox Kilo Charlie was the ninth A320 to be built, and it first flew on the 6th of January 1988, three days before its total destruction. Air France was the A320 launch customer, and this was the third airframe that the airline had delivered, and it certainly had that new aircraft smell since it had only been in service for a couple of days. The captain was 44 years old and had been with his airline for 20 years, flying the Caravelle, the 707727737 Airbus A300 and 310. He was a highly distinguished training captain and had been appointed the head of training for the company's new fleet as well as being their technical pilot. He had been heavily involved in the test flying of the A320, so he had a great deal of experience. 
His first officer was also very experienced and had qualified as an A320 captain three months prior to the crash. The aircraft had been chartered to fly 130 passengers from Charles de Gaulle Airport to Basel Mulhaus Airport for a press conference, followed by another short flight to take part in a show at Habsheim Airfield. Most of the passengers were journalists and raffle prize winners, and for many members of the public this was to be their first chance to see the aircraft perform. The plan was to complete a low-speed flypast at 100 feet with the aircraft in the landing configuration, a steep climb away followed by a second high-speed pass in the opposite direction. Although they had busy weekends, they didn't receive their flight plans until the morning of the flight. The captain reassured his first officer, saying, Don't worry, I've done it 20 times before even though the investigation established that neither pilot had previously made a similar demonstration flight. The crew's pre-flight preparation should have included a study of Air France's regulations relating to their minimum overfly height, which was 170 feet, even though previous demonstration flights that the airline performed had been done at 100 feet. At Basel Mulhaus, it wasn't until the taxi out that the captain briefed his first officer on how he would conduct the flypast. He said that he would do the pass at 100 feet in flat 3 with the gear down and at maximum angle of attack. To achieve this, he would have to disengage the high angle of attack protection known as alpha floor. He advised the first officer that he would need him to handle the throttles and that the captain might also need assistance to overcome the stick loads that would be present. It would be the FO's job to initiate toga full power when ordered by the captain. In case you're wondering, Alpha Floor is an automatic protection applied by the autothrust system which, regardless of the thrust lever position, applies full toga power when the aircraft approaches the maximum angle of attack. Below 100 feet, Alpha Floor is not available. There were some important omissions made. The captain gave no indication of a specific point where the climb would start. There was no task-sharing mentioned other than throttle control, particularly as the flight crew consisted of two captains. Despite saying that he was familiar with this manoeuvre, the captain had never performed a flypast without alpha floor protection, which would have to be disabled for this low pass. A takeoff and short transit was conducted without incident, and then Flight 296 lined up for the flypast with the gear down, auto thrust off, and alpha floor inhibited. Unfamiliar with the airfield, they started their descent a little late. Passing 300 feet, the GPWS chimed as they had not yet selected Flap 3, so it was turned off. The radio altimeter called the height as they passed 300, 200, and then 100. When the captain arrived at his briefed height, his first officer advised him, OK, you're at 100 feet there. Watch, watch. But the captain keeps descending, and all the while the throttles are at idle. The radio altimeter calls 40 feet. 
15 seconds later, there's the distinctive noise of the thrust levers being pushed up to full power, and at the same time the radio altimeter calls 30 feet. The speed is now well below a normal approach speed. At this point, the aircraft's engines are sitting at idle power, only 29% N1. In comparison, during a normal approach, the N1 fan would be rotating at between 40 and 70% N1. From their low idle position, it was going to take some time for them to spool up to full power, time the captain no longer had. As the engine started to increase power, the A320 started to brush the trees at the end of the airfield. The deceleration was significant, and the engines ingested leaves and branches, which caused them both to fail. The aircraft sank into the trees and disappeared, shortly followed by a huge fireball. Remarkably, there are only three fatalities. The inquiry establishes that the aircraft suffered no faults, the weather was good, the crew were well qualified, the flight controls operated normally as did the engines, and that the pilots were primarily to blame. In his defence, the captain and others claimed that the flight recorder and the cockpit voice recorder had been tampered with, that the flight controls didn't follow his orders and that the engines didn't respond correctly, all of which were not proven in court. In a final twist, prosecutions by French courts saw the captain, his first officer, two Air France officials and the president of the flying club sponsoring the air show guilty of involuntary manslaughter. The rumours and falsehoods following this crash echoed around the world, particularly from parties not familiar with the workings of fly-by-wire. Experienced pilots who ought to have known better blamed the flight control system out of hand and others bad-mouthed the A320 out of malice. Airbus pilots were often asked, in all seriousness, if the thrust would often fail to respond, or if the aircraft would unexpectedly do its own thing, and the unfounded suspicion that surrounds the Airbus fly-by-wire aircraft still lingers, all completely unproved and unfounded. This didn't prevent Airbus from developing a whole family of other models based on the lovely A320. First it was stretched to the A321 and the A325 and then shrunk into the A319 and the dinky little A318. The A320E for enhanced version had improved efficiency and more recently came the NEO, the new engine option with another leap forward in efficiency. Despite the success of the A320, Airbus are looking forwards towards its replacement, tentatively dubbed the NSR for new short-range aircraft, although the success of the NEO 
means that this development has been shifted to the back burner for a while. For the first decade of its life, the A320 family was significantly outsold by that of the 737, but by 1996 the difference was insignificant. The crossover came in 2002, when the Airbus began to outstrip the 737, and as of January this year, Airbus will have delivered over 9,000 of the A320 family to 330 different operators. Despite these little Airbuses only having been around since 1988, in, instead of 1965 for the 737, the Airbus A320 family orders have now overtaken those of the Boeing, partly, of course, due to the grounding of the 737 MAX. A great little aircraft though, it has truly earned its place in history and it's an aircraft that its pilots are rightly proud of. This plain tale was produced to celebrate the wonderful A320 Podcast's 100th show. Congratulations to Matt and Andy and their team for creating such a high-quality and enjoyable training tool. And I trust they will continue to pass on the word to generations of Airbus pilots. You can find the A320 Podcast at a320podcast.co.uk. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show, and you can find that at airlinepilotguy.com.